0: What is community? Why is community important? What are some of the common characteristics of a community that you might belong to? What community do you belong to? I think that these are very, very important questions to be asking ourselves, especially nowadays. Questions that are fit and ready for yet another disability dojo. Welcome. Hello everyone, and it's been a minute since we have done the Disability Dojo, but we have heard the public outcry for yet another edition of a Disability Dojo. So we are here to serve and give the people what they want. And so we are bringing you a Disability Dojo. We used to do these once a week, but in season three here, we have changed the format a little bit. We are doing two long form episodes per month, and we figure that we will be doing intermittently a disability dojo here or there, perhaps each quarter, just to give some takes, perspectives, some drill downs into some important issues and topics that might be relevant for the people and community that we serve. And that's one of the reasons why I'm opening this can of worms into the topic of community. What is it? What is it about? Why is it important? What defines a community? What are some of the characteristics of the community? And from my perspective, community is everything. It's made up of individuals, but collectively these individuals come together and make some emergent property that is different than any single person, and I just feel like it is the mosaic and beauty of life. And I believe that this is perhaps one of the most important topics um, that we could be talking about, at least as it pertains to the collection of people, the community that we serve, people with disabilities. Before COVID hit, There was a lot of research that came out that spoke about how isolation and loneliness was one of the most important factors that could be contributed to the mortality and morbidity of people. What I mean is, is that there were research that was showing that the more isolated and lonely a person felt, more disconnected from a community the more likely they were to develop heart disease, cancer, diabetes, stroke, and certainly clinical depression. And these studies were showing that people were living shorter, sicker lives because they were reporting more isolation and loneliness than other people who were connected and had social supports and were feeling like they had belonged to a certain group of people and were getting meaning and significance out of that belonging. So much so that the researchers were equating that um, levels of isolation and loneliness were equal to smoking cigarettes daily in terms of its health impacts, its physical health impacts. So let alone the, the mental health impacts that, that it was having on people. And before COVID struck, people with disabilities were more likely to feel isolated, to feel lonely, disconnected, and not affiliated with a group, i.e. a community of people and support. Now with COVID, and certainly with the, the years uh, you know, after COVID, I'm recording this like basically the day that we shut our center down, March 13th, 2020, the, the, you know, the time when at least COVID in our uh, neck of the woods in Florida, everything stopped. Schools were canceled, businesses were shut. We went into lockdown. Like I'm literally recording this three years uh, to the day uh, from when, when that all happened. So we're, we're a few years out uh, from when this event occurred. And I gotta say, that um, you know, before, before that, we were more likely to experience isolation and loneliness. And throughout the last few years, um, I believe, uh, have been experiencing even more isolation and loneliness, more widespread throughout the disability community and more distance from one another. Ever since we've opened up our center, back opened up you know, from, from the time that we had shut, shut things down three years ago, um, things just look and feel different. Um, we, we still have people coming to our center, we still have people participating in our classes, but it's fewer, um, it, it's less consistent. Um, people seem to be um, you know, doing things differently out in the community than they used to. And this seems to be a trend that uh, I'm hearing from other centers for independent living. Other disability organizations, other organizations that serve older adults or seniors, or even kids, friends that I know that operate gymnasiums, pretty much across the board. People are just saying that you know the participation of people in the community is is a bit different, um, and people are trying to figure out different ways of how we can reconnect, reengage. And uh, really reunite uh, a community that has been uh, a bit changed in, in how it circulates. And, and for some areas, it's for the good. Absolutely. We've learned how to do things a lot differently. I'm not at all saying, you know, we need to have things go back to the way they were before COVID, because I, as I alluded, uh, people with disabilities were, you know, in general, more isolated, had less social supports than people without disabilities. So I'm not trying to go backwards by any means. Um, but what I'm saying is that we can really have a great opportunity here to rebuild our community in ways that we have only dreamed about. And this is, I think, a really incredible time and space to create that. To, to build this you know, new vision for the future and reconnection of our community. And so I think before I, I go into to more of that, I think it's very important to talk about um, some of the things that really drive the reason why community is so important. It, it's believed from psychologists that our number one need is to be accepted by one another. And our number one fear is the fear of being rejected by other people. And I can think of in so many ways how this has driven the things that I have thought, that I have said, and uh, those things that I have done. I've seen this in other people and and what they say and what what they do, this just innate uh, desire that we have as social beings to, to be connected with one another, to be accepted by one another, to be included uh, f- and uh, from the groups of people or the family or the friends or the neighbors or, or whoever it might be in society. And that when we are rejected, when we are excluded, it is excruciating. It's very painful uh, for that to happen to anybody. And so it's very natural, and some evolutionary psychologists would say, in fact, it is part of our human nature to be driven into groups, to be driven into tribes. That in fact it was fundamental and essential for the evolution of the human species, because it allowed us to work together. You know, some can argue that you know human beings have this amazing capacity for reason and logic, and to be able to think abstractly about concepts. And you know that that this was the reason that um, humans have been able to evolve the way that we have. And then others will say, well, that's, that's great, but if we did this as an individual, uh, individually, and didn't come together to work together, more like, say, bees and ants work together in colonies, uh, sharing ideas, sharing resources, coming together uh, to work as teams, to work as a group, to work as a community, that that inherent, collective, reciprocal, connection with one another is the reason that human beings have been able to evolve the way that we have. And, uh, yeah, and, and this is something that's so driven into our DNA and is so very important. I know I saw this uh, on, a, on, on, on so many levels with, through my life, but really what jumps out to me is when I was working uh, in, in previous careers with the Department of Child and Family Services, when I was working with Wayward Youth, And in working with wayward youth, youth that were remanded into state custody, and many of them had uh, disabilities and mental health challenges. And what I saw was, is that, you know, kids that were taken out of their homes for either abandonment, abuse, neglect, um, you know, their family structure wasn't necessarily in place. They weren't uh, certainly provided the opportunity or environment to be able to make the, the bonds that are necessary. Um, at a very early informative age. And they you know, weren't able to meet some of those psychosocial developmental milestones that all of us need to, to be able to have fulfilled and to meet. And in lacking those experiences uh, and connections with people, um, often the, the, the kids that I would end up working with were kids that then gravitated towards joining gangs. And gangs were a place where many other you know, youth that grew up in similar circumstances started forming, you know, as a way to connect with one another. And yeah, they would go through certain you know, kind of initiation rituals, and, and ways of being uh, with each other and within, you know, the neighborhoods that they were at that were, you know, that would, would be very bonding. Um, and yeah, a lot of these things weren't uh, necessarily good behaviors. Uh, some of them were, in fact, breaking the law and being criminals. But others, you know, they found, you know, that they would participate in, in doing these things out of the need to belong. And, and because they didn't get that in other places, they were seeking this and, and, and their peers, and, and they had opportunities from the peers that were going through the same things that they were going through, the, this inability to connect, to bond, um, to attach to other people. And yeah, this was unhealthy in, in, the, in, in certainly some of the behaviors that they were doing, but it was meeting a need that they had to feel included uh, by other people. And, and they would often talk you know, about, yeah, I would do things that I wouldn't necessarily want to do, um, but the, 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 the need to be accepted by other people certainly trump the kind of moral sense that they, they might have about um, not doing some of the things that they were doing. And so this is just, I believe, you know, something that really is innate and within us and that, you know, it forms and impacts so much of what we end up doing. And, and, and for me, um, this drove me into studying more about community after I left DCF and, and working uh, with other innovative nonprofits that worked with high-risk youth and seeing how much this need to belong together uh, impacted them, you know, I, I ended up going into uh, graduate schools to study community sciences. And, and the special area that I came to really you know, do a lot of work in and, and to do a lot of research and service-based projects in was known as community-based participatory research. That's a mouthful there. And uh, this area, the notion of it was, is that, um, you know, in order to really affect change in a community, it was important to get to know the community, to experience the community, to show up in the community. And, and I had you know, many opportunities to do this with low income neighborhoods, um, with veterans and other various groups of people who have different disabilities than I have. And to spend time with them, to get to know them, for them to get to know me, to garner trust, a very critical point in engaging a community. And the idea was to engage the community, get to know the community, put them front and center, and then assist them in ways that that would facilitate them looking at what they liked about their community and what they wanted to change about their community and help them assess what those changes would look like and then start planning for for how to make that change possible within the community, using the resources that are within the community, or that could be leveraged to help support the community in making those changes, whether they were programmatically, whether they were based on you know social economic policies that impacted the community, and then help them implement whatever those programmatic or policy-based changes were, and then see what worked, what didn't work, iterate based on a you know, feedback loop, and then uh, see if we could sustain some of the changes that seem to be working to help enhance what the community identified as their needs that they wanted to change. And, and so this, this process of, of really connecting with communities, getting to know communities, Getting to know what they love about their communities, know what they want to change about their communities, and leverage the resources necessary to help facilitate the change that they wanted to see in the evolution of their community um, is something that I found and continue to find to be some of the most fulfilling and rewarding work you know, in the area of, of health promotion and and ideas trying to, you know, scale out and, and seeing what works and what doesn't work, I think that this is the fundamental piece that is so necessary. Oftentimes in the areas of health promotion, they find that, you know, something works in promoting the health of a community in Los Angeles in the nineteen eighties, which was, you know, reaching out to, to gangs and trying to reduce the amount of you know, alcohol, drugs and tobacco and other drug use. Um, You know, that something worked out there, and and it worked in L.A. in the 80s. And then they tried to take what worked out there and expand it to the rest of the United States. This was eventually what became the D.A.R.E. program, the Drug Awareness and Resistance Education. And this was very popular in the 80s, 90s, and early into 2000. But it didn't work outside of Los Angeles during the 80s. And it didn't work in large measure, it's believed, because communities look different across the nation, in different areas. And And this is common across whether it's nutritional um, interventions or physical activity interventions, or you know whether it's promoting a vaccine or whatever it might be, even if something works in one community, the idea that it can be replicated in other communities, Um, it's a great theory, but I, when I look at the the amount of experience that I have and the other you know, um in reading and researching it, there's a there's an implementation issue. There's a in, in the National Institutes of Health will say implementation science. You know, how do we get things to scale that seem to work in one community into other communities? And this is still a major challenge in public health. And I believe it's because these individual characteristics and um traits of a community vary so often between one another that it's often uh, hard to scale. Now I'm throwing around words like community and, 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 characteristics here without, I think even having like a, um, you know, a definition of what exactly I'm talking about. So and when we talk about community, it's a group of people, uh, living in, sometimes it's a similar area. It doesn't always have to be, but they have a particular, you know, characteristics or common traits that they you know, have with one another. One of the best definitions of community that, that, I came across was I think it had to do with a feeling of fellowship, a feeling of fellowship with others as a re- as a result of sharing common experiences, activity, interests and goals. A common fellowship with others. I think that is so rich. There's so much in there. That goes back to our innate Desire to want to connect with one another, to feel like we're in each other's companies, to, to see other people, to have other people see us. That fellowship with others through shared experiences, I think fundamentally is what, what we're all looking for. And, and I, I recently came across one of the uh, longest research um, uh, projects on the attributes of happiness, like what what are some of the fact most important factors for ha- happiness? And it's done out of Harvard. Harvard, Harvard Public Health had recently, um, you know, updated their longitudinal study, which started in the '30s, and so it's been multi generational, following these people, following the sons and daughters of people, and what makes really people happy. It's it's found to be social connectivity. This social connectivity and fellowship that we can have with one another within a community. And the community, again, it can be family, it can be neighborhood, it can be a group, um, a gang, a company, you know, that we have with people. One of the synonyms, a few of the synonyms that I came across for, for community that I really liked was center, center, circle, a ring. You know, these, these I, I found to be surprising. And yet it made sense to me that the community would be like the center, you know, of what a group of people come together uh, around to share these experiences with. And that it would make a bond with people much like a circle, unbroken, no beginning, no end. Um, so, yeah, the community. I, I love that. And what the characteristics that grow out of a community that you know, can emerge out of a group of individuals coming together that can be different than any one of the individuals is culture. And we talk about how important culture is nowadays uh, for people um, and, and what represents you know, certain people's cultures and cultural identity and, and, and the importance of culture in our society. I mean, there is so much richness here to get into Now, the definition that I love about culture, that I think is a really good uh, definition for culture, is it is a way of life, a way of living, a way of being in the world. I love that definition, the way, the process, how we are, how we show up. You know, I, I believe it's not, you know, what we want to manifest. It's who we are that will manifest the life that we have. It is our way of being. And so culture uh, can be defined as a way of life that a population that are, um, you know, passed down, you know, from generation to generation, comprised of knowledge, attitudes, beliefs, codes of conduct, and ways of being uh, with each other it can be customs rituals it evolves into institutions how people dress the language that they speak how they speak that language the dialect the accents religion arts entertainment sports achievements and other manifestations of uh, intellectual advancement oh my goodness there is so much there there is so much there so out of a community which is a group of individuals emerges these characteristics that are different than any one of the individuals but collectively these characteristics form a culture and this again this culture can be based on you know family that we're born into and how culture is impressed upon us by our fam- you know family origins and how even within the roles of the family, you know, and the, and the cultural characteristics of what it's like to be a mother, what it's like to be a father, a brother, a sister, an uncle, an aunt, culture can be based on neighborhoods and where people live, whether they live in an urban area or a rural area. Think about the cultural differences, you know, of people that live in rural areas. And live in urban areas, and what it's like as a culture, and how it impacts knowledge, attitudes, beliefs, um, you know, music, uh, the way people dress, how, you know, the language—even if it's the same language, how that language is. Spoken And even within urban areas, how different urban areas can be. Atlanta is different than Washington, D.C., which is different than New York, which is then different than Boston, which is different than Providence, Rhode Island, which is different than Burlington, Vermont, which is different than Lexington, Kentucky, which is different than Kansas City, which is different than Dallas, which is different than Denver, Colorado, which is different than Salt Lake City. And that is different than Las Vegas. Nothing like Vegas, right? Which is different than Los Angeles, which is different than San Francisco, Seattle, and on and on. While there may be common traits, among all those cities and the way they look and the way they operate and the different institutions or the same, similar institutions that are within all those cities, there's just something culturally different about all those cities. The same could be said for those rural areas and the differences that, that are within there. The differences in what it's like to be affiliated with different races or ethnicities or to be male or to be female or what it's like to be young, what it's like to be old look at all the cultural differences within sports between the different sports it's certainly different being a swimmer than it is a baseball player and certainly different than it is to be a a football player or a snowboarder or a skier or what it's like across different hobbies different music genres of music go to the different concerts see the way that people dress see the way that people look Political differences and the culture that emerges out of those political differences. Religious, spiritual, atheist, all these different cultures that exist within the communities. Communities within communities that have various cultures. It is so much there. And why is this important as it pertains to disability? My question's at the top of this episode. When I asked you know what community are you a part of?" I just gave a long list of different types of communities and the cultures that, that could be within those communities. well what about disability? And if you have a disability, you know do you, you know what, what community people are you ascribed to based on your disability? You know I'm legally blind, so I ascribed to the people you know who have low vision. Um, Maybe different than than people that are totally blind, because I'm not totally blind. And that could be another community within the visually impaired community. Um, What about people who are deaf? Very distinct community and cultural characteristics. People with mental health conditions. People who have physical mobility issues. People with intellectual disabilities or developmental disabilities. What about all the different ways that we could categorize disability? And we could look at some of the common attributes that are cut across this. So we can look at the community of people with disabilities in general as one big you know, group of people. And, and certainly we would find a lot of characteristics and traits that would cut across each and every one of those uh, subgroups of disabilities. Absolutely. But then when we look at these individual groups of people with disabilities, there are differences, cultural characteristics start to emerge that are different between one another. What group of people with disabilities are you ascribed to, do you associate with? Do you even see yourself belonging to? Are you engaged with this community? Are you participating within this community? I think these are very important questions to ask ourselves. As I said at the beginning of my soliloquy here, seeing our community more fragmented than ever. Maybe you weren't participating in it before COVID. Maybe you were. Maybe it looks different now. How do you want to be in this community? And and thankfully for us, the independent living movement, which started in the early 60s, with this fellow named Ed Roberts, who wanted to go to Berkeley. Uh, he was eligible. He, he you know, had the grades and you know, acumen to be able to go there. Uh, but it was you know during a time when you know, there wasn't the, the laws uh, that are on the books today to ensure equal access to post-secondary education. So he had to advocate for it. You know, he, he had to really work hard to, to raise his voice. And others joined and it became a movement, the independent living movement. This is a fairly new phenomenon in our culture, in our existence as a country. You know, this idea that a group of people, a community of people with disabilities would actually come together for a shared cause, get organized and say, hey, you know, we want to live in the community. We wanna be engaged and included in the activities of a community, such as going to college, going to work, shopping, entertainment, parks, recreation, all the different things that people are able to do in a functional society. People with disabilities became organized as a community to say that we should have the same human rights, civil rights, that people without disabilities have. This is a fairly new phenomenon. You know, I mean, this really is literally like 50 some odd years ago, a groups of people with disabilities started organizing and coming together. A time where people with disabilities were by the masses warehouse in institutions. And because people with disabilities came together, organized, developed communities, advocated, People with disabilities began to move from institutions and back into the community to live independently. The independent living community was born from this movement. Wow, this is so phenomenal and so recent. We're barely getting started, I believe. And this is such a great opportunity that we're in now to make our community even better and even stronger than it ever has been before. A community that has identified itself as having a shared struggle and shared history. Some of the cultural characteristics and traits that come out of this community is this notion that we can relate to one another because we know what it's like to have to work a little differently, a little harder, and a little smarter to be able to go to school, to be able to go to work, to, to be able to, to, to be living in the community independently. It looks a little different, and that's okay. We'll, we'll figure it out. But we sh- all, regardless of disabilities, can relate on some level about this shared struggle and shared history that we have. This notion, this philosophy, that we should have the same human and civil rights as people without disabilities. The idea that in order for things to really advance, it's gotta be us. It's gotta be the community of people with disabilities that takes the control. They call this consumer control. People um, who, who access and utilize services by Centers for Independent Living are called consumers. And it's this notion of consumer control that we are the experts. We know exactly what we need. We know exactly how to adapt, how to overcome. Uh, And so thus, we are the ones, you know, ultimately this idea of independence, you know, that we need to be part of the solution, not expecting others to do it for us, not accepting handouts, but rather a hand up if necessary to get the knowledge or the, the skills or whatever it may be to achieve the independent life that we're seeking, it's up to us. And it's up to us coming together as a community to be able to figure out. That's another cultural trait. And that the ideal, you know, that the, the, the independent living community um, is stronger when we're bonded together. Again, the reason for this episode is that I am giving a call for us to reconnect, re-engage, rebuild this community in ways that we have only dreamed about because we are stronger when we are bonded together. We're living in an age where division is ever present. It's all over the place to the point where yeah, people are kind of getting, you know, driven into their tribes but then staying siloed in those tribes, making the other tribes the enemy. The disability community, it's a community everyone will join at some point there's no way to have division within this community because it is part of the human condition and as we've said so many times on this podcast that if you don't have a disability now you're likely going to get one in your lifetime it's an all-inclusive group this is for everybody no matter how young or old male female What political party you are or are not a part of, religion you are or are not a part of, your birth order, your race, your ethnicity, Mm, disability doesn't care about any of that, it will likely visit you in your lifetime. And that's okay because this community is all inclusive and we're stronger when we're bonded together. Not only are that we are stronger when we're bonded together, but our community, the broader, general, overall society of all people is better and healthier with us in it. Because we bring in these incredible values and perspectives and lived experiences that makes a community diverse. And, and these perspectives can help other people out, too, with what they're going through we are so important to the community this is just very critical for all of humanity to be able to benefit from people with disabilities coming together in communities to be able to do this and and so within the disability communities that that may exist out there again i'm thinking even in a general sense you know because centers for independent living serve all disabilities and all ages But I'm also thinking, you know, by disability, the importance of this and the opportunity that we have here nowadays. But I'm also even thinking within, you know, within the subgroups, um, uh, you know, across disabilities. But I'm also thinking about certain populations that certainly are communities and have their own culture. In particular, I'm thinking about veterans. My experience in working at the the veterans' hospitals um, uh, and, and administration, You know, one of the things I quickly learned there was that many of the veterans with service connected disabilities, the ones that I was working with that had either PTSD, traumatic brain injury, depression, or any three of those, the 100% of veterans that had service connected disabilities related to those three conditions, out of that 100%, only 15% were seeking treatment for their disability. That's like one out of six veterans who are diagnosed with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and or depression were actually seeking any kind of assistance, resources for their disabilities. And when I was working with many of these veterans, I was wanting to know why. Why was this? And it largely, to summarize it and paraphrase it, it was due to the stigma related to disability. They ran from disability. These very courageous people. You know, did not want to be associated with the community of people with disabilities for a lot of different reasons, for very understandable reasons. There's a serious stigma with having a disability. And I'm seeing this in another population that I'm deeply concerned and care for and would love to be able to provide services for, farmers. Think about how important farmers are. And people that work in the agricultural fields are for us today. I think if uh, people weren't aware of it, certainly during COVID, when the food chain was highly impacted by this, you know, uh, th- we would see that. You know, if you've eaten anything today, probably came from a farm. When we went up to uh, the state capitol in Tallahassee a few weeks ago, one of the um, state representatives says that. You know, farming is a national security, you know, issue. And ensuring that our farmers are able to do their job, do their work, and and that they can get the food that they're producing out to the people, it is a national security issue. Because as we've seen with COVID, if something happens to that chain, it affects all of us. Farming and people that work in agriculture is a critical industry. And it's one of the most dangerous industries. In terms of physical accidents, it's one of the most dangerous. A lot of uh, people get injured on the job. And mental health is a very big issue with farmers. Farmers have six times the suicide rate compared to the general population. And like veterans, this is a community that I'm learning that runs from the word disability, for a lot of understandable reasons. While farming is a very proud community, um, in general, what I'm learning, it's a community that does not want to be associated necessarily with people with disabilities. And I'm hoping that we can learn more about why this is and Hoping that we can overcome some of those barriers, whatever they may be, so that we can get farmers who do have uh, conditions that we can able to support and meet some needs that are out there can do it. So when I think about community and the importance of people feeling welcome and included and not stigmatized, this is some of the people that I'm thinking about, that I want to learn more about. And that if they feel that they have the ability uh, or condition or want to be able to join, that they can identify themselves with this community. And hopefully they can. Hopefully they can find strength and power in that. I know for myself, it took me a long time to want to be acknowledged as a person with a disability. I ran from disability. I was ashamed of my disability. So when I speak of veterans or, or speak of, you know, learning about farmers and, and, and some of their um, attitudes and beliefs about disability and not wanting to be associated with disability, I get it. I fully get it. And it's taken me many years, decades, to, to have the capacity to, to be okay with identifying with a disability, to feel you know, that, that disability has actually served me and made my life better in so many ways. And it's put me in a position where I I want to help facilitate people in in meeting their needs, whether they're comfortable with that word or not, whether they want to join the community or identify with the community or not. doesn't matter to me in the sense that I want to help. But I do hope that people can get to a place where they do see themselves as connected with other people that have similar conditions and that they can share their experiences, or learn from the experiences of other people so that they can have their lives enhanced, to feel connection, to feel that fellowship of being connected with other people, those shared experiences, those shared history, the shared struggles, the shared joys of what it's like to overcome obstacles, to become better people from overcoming these conditions, from... Allowing ourselves to be a little vulnerable, to have the courage to lean in that vulnerability, face some of the fears that we might have, You know, accept having humility. And if we're able to go through that process, perhaps we can have a bit of gratitude and then empathy for other people too that are in similar conditions that we may wanna also now help along their path because they too may be ashamed Or run from disability and not want to join that community. It is so important this work, this community of people that whether we are not we want to ascribe to, associate with or not, it is so important that we see ourselves as one part of a much larger, one cell of a much larger organism because the health of us individually and collectively, is on the line right now. It really is. I feel like we're in this liminal space, that space where we're walking through a threshold. We're not in one room or the other. We're like right in that doorway. And for me, I think this is a very important inflection point in time where we can really shape what our community looks like. There's been so much change that has happened over the last few years, so many great changes that have happened. And there's some concerning challenges that are also here. But those challenges bring opportunity and it is a great opportunity for us to build our community back, not backwards, but we can build it in a way that we have only dreamed of or we haven't even envisioned yet, but let's, let's take that time to envision. What would that community look like? What would this like, idea of having an engaged, participatory, inclusive disability community look like? I, I, would, I would imagine that it would be accepting, that it'd be welcoming, that it'd be empowering, That it would be challenging. It would get us out of our our comfort zone. It would be adaptable. It would be some place where we could be accepted. It would be some place where we could be vulnerable with other people. It would be some place where we could have empathy. It would be some place where we could be who we are. Without having to be fake or wear masks or be inauthentic, it would be a place where we could be authentically ourselves and feel empowered to do so, because disability is part of the human condition, and we're not the only ones going through it. And we can relate to other people that are. They can help us. We can help each other. And we can sustain this. Think about what ever it is. That you would want to envision the power of a group of people coming together in fellowship around disability can have. It can unite us in ways that we have yet to even fathom. But let's fathom it. Let's envision this. Let's see what it looks like. And let's go build it. Let's make it happen. If not now, when... If not us, then who? I look forward to reconnecting, reengaging, and rebuilding a much, much better, stronger and independent community of people with all kinds of disabilities from all kinds of different walks of life. We need it, humanity needs it to live the independent life. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com, or call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.